Hello. Hey, Peter. It's Kurt. Kurt. Okay. I'll patch us in. Okay. Hello. Uh, Washington, D.C. is hot, hot, and hotter. Good, are you okay, there? I'm back in the session. It's Peter Young here. Uh, let's start the session now. Uh, good morning and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, this is the uh, Ontolog Invited Speaker Session. It's Thursday, 2005, uh, August 11. We are glad to have Professor Jim Handler from the University of Maryland with us. And the subject of uh, the, the session today is Semantic Web Q&A. First of all, we'd like to thank uh, Professor Mark Musen from Stanford for extending the invitation on behalf of our community to Professor Handler. And uh, let's ask Mark to introduce our speaker today. Mark? Sure. Thanks, Peter. It's, it's really a pleasure to introduce Jim Hendler, uh, who many of you know, uh, at least virtually. Uh, Jim is a professor at the University of Maryland and uh, directs activities related to the semantic web and, and agent technology at the Maryland Information and Network Dynamics Laboratory. Uh, Jim is prolific in so many ways um, and is someone who I think uh, represents uh, really the best of what DARPA was intended to do. I think for many of you, you recognize that uh, for many years the idea of putting semantics up on the web was sort of a gleam in people's eyes, uh, not really achievable, something that people talked about very informally. Uh, and Jim really had a vision for how to make this happen. And it's, uh, I think it's really a, a testament to Jim for his ability to go to DARPA, um, get a few million dollars, and turn the world around uh, by recruiting a large number of really brilliant people who worked with him for a number of years and created all the fundamental technology that now is coming together to make the idea of uh, semantics and, and knowledge processing on the internet really a, a reality. Um, Jim has co come back to ac academic life, though he continues to uh, work very heavily with various government agencies. And for many people, uh, Jim is the semantic web. Uh, certainly, he is that vision. And uh, no, it's a really great pleasure to introduce him to the Ontolog Forum and to have an opportunity to, to give him the chance to talk to you directly. It's so cute that he's sharing that Thank you very much, Mark. Uh, so before we pass the uh, floor to to Jim, uh, may I request all the the rest of the audience to put your phone on mute unless you are speaking, and also to make sure you don't put us on hold because that way you might send music into the line. Uh, we are recording the session once again, and uh, Ontolog has an open IPR policy. So this session will be recorded, will be archived, and will become available on the internet. Okay, uh, Professor Handler, your floor. Thanks. Um, you know, when I was first asked if I would do this, I started to prepare the usual slides and stuff, and then I saw who was on the Ontolog forum most of the time and realized at least over half of you have seen uh, most of my, at least one or more of my talks, and so I figured and also I looked over some of the past speakers, it seemed to me that just a Q&A session might be productive. And I also know that I've been on a lot of such calls as these where, you know, you get to the end of it and there's only a minute or two for questions. 
and that many of you have burning questions. Let me just try to set two boundaries on this. Um, one is sort of on an upper boundary. There's a lot of uh, things that get published with respect to the semantic web in what one might call philosophy. Um, you know, there was recently somebody trying to defend Clay Smirky, uh, Sharky by, um, okay. you know, talking Wittgensteinian something or other. I, you know, I'm perfectly happy to go one-on-one -on, -one on that stuff, but I don't think, but I don't think that's the most useful thing to do. Some somebody is uh, either not muted or or is talking into their phone, having a lot of noise. But anyway, so so I would try to avoid deep philosophy. Okay, whoever that is on the phone, I mean, could you mute your line, please? Of course, they're the ones who are not listening. Um, and then the... Okay, I'll do it. And then the other... Anyway, I was going to say, and then the other thing is, you know, a lot of you I know have questions that might be better answered one-to-one. -one. What I'll do in that case, what I would suggest in that case is... Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I'm not worried about it. Uh, what I would suggest in what I was can can people hear me over this mic? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just going to keep talking, and we'll just keep going. Sorry about. It wouldn't be the first time I've talked over someone. It's just usually it's on purpose. Um, the the second um, thing I would say. So I was trying to say. So if you have very narrow questions about a particular application or way of doing something, um, I'm perfectly happy to take those questions email. Just mention to me that you were on the call, so I'll be able to place what the context was. So, and with, could, you, could you state then in the affirmative what you would like to focus on here? Well, everything else. So, you know, gen issues that you think are generally interesting. When I, when I say your own concern, I don't mean, hey, I'm doing a migration. Tell me about migration. I mean something like, uh, if I'm using SCOS and I want to represent the such-and-such such field of the so-and-so, or, you know, in OWL, the inverse functional when applied to a data type has the following funny subset. I'll feel free on this call to give a very fast answer and, and suggest those go elsewhere. So I'm, I'm really looking more for, you know, conceptual discussion, discussion about, you know, tools and techniques and whatever you guys want to hear. Are you open for questions now? Yeah, I'm ready. I have a question. This is Mike Ushold. Um I sent Jim an email beforehand. I don't know, Jim, did you get it? I'll read it out. You may have had a chance to look at it. You get it? Can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you, Mike. Okay. So here's the question. Currently, I need to build an ontology to do reasoning and general functional computation. So our old DL is not adequate to this purpose. There's no standard rule language, etc., that does computation. And there's a lot of work going on, but there's nothing standard. So what I can do is use a deductive database tool, such as those produced by Enterprise or OntologyWorks, and that will get my job done for a point solution. However, due to the differences between our DL and F-Logic, for instance, closed world versus open world, and unique names assumptions, that means I'm kind of forced to choose. I need to build my ontology in one or the other language, and then it's not going to be as interoperable. Um, I don't really want to commit now to using one approach and then have to redo the ontology later. 
I don't want to have to maintain two separate ontologies. I really want to develop and maintain one, and then export it as necessary to different uses and applications. So really, am I asking for too much? What would you recommend that people do in this situation in the short term, and how are these issues going to be addressed in the long term? So, you know, not surprisingly, you're asking good questions, um, Mike. Um, you know, there's, there's a few different parts of it, right? And of course, a lot depends on application issues and things like that. If I ask this question in some other area, um, you know, you might have similar issues of, you know, do I use a relational or object-oriented database when I need some of both? So obviously, some of the answer in any given um, project is going to be project-dependent. How, how, how key is it to use standards, things like that? What I would say is that the current deepest issue in the, in, in the area, I think, is coming up with how the rules and the ontology as a declarative structure are going to uh, interop uh, interoperate and live together happily on the web. We, we Many of us believe we have to do this. Um, the problem is that there's really two different things you want to do with ontologies. One is sort of the declarative framework aimed at being a, a standard domain model for people to use across one area, and the other one is the processing of that, uh, using that to do things. And those two are different. So OWL was very much designed for the former, and F-Logic and some of these other rules uh, approaches XSB really go for the... Uh, go for the go for the latter, and there are some overlap between the two. So it really is, you know, it's, it's a tricky issue what to do now. What I would say is um, currently I think OWL, because of the nature of it as a standard, gives you a very good lowest common denominator where to start on a lot of this stuff. So put the declarative stuff that you can put in OWL in OWL. Now there's a lot of work going on for automated mappings of OWL to various kind of logics and things. Those things are still a little more researchy. Uh, some of the applications I know you work on, Mike, are very happy in that in that research. Some of them aren't. The problem is when you talk about going to a particular tool or a particular technique or a particular way of doing F-Logic, then you have the problem of the interoperability. It's what we built OWL to avoid, was to have you know something that would let us um, let us let us move on. So. You know, in the medium and long term, you know that the W3C is starting to look at rule stuff. I suspect they'll come up with something in the space that's in the middle of a, um, you know, on one hand, it won't be the world's best rules language. On the other hand, it will extend OWL. What I'm not a big fan of is jumping right to something as complicated as common logic or something like that and then expecting the commercial world to accept that in one piece, one step. So using it for academic work, using it as the basis on which you formalize things, that makes a lot of sense to me. Expecting somehow that non-proprietary tools sharing that in a large space are likely to happen, um, that's a little harder. Just to clarify, this is Chris Menzel. Um, uh, that, that's, uh, you're exactly right, but, but uh, common logic wouldn't be designed to do the thing you're worried about it doing. It really is uh, a framework for specifying.
identifying languages, and, and it can be used to express to to clear, to uh, to uh, to uh, define languages much weaker than full first order logic. So just just to throw that as a clarification, uh, and nobody working on common logic is 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 thinking that it would be used as a, a framework which would be that, that proprietary tools should embrace and. Up on this, Adrian Walker. Um, is it okay? Uh, sorry, I interrupted somebody there. Um, uh, the Rules Interoperability Workshop um, had a number of accepted papers, and um, one of them, the, the last paper, um, suggested that uh, this question of interoperability across rule systems could be addressed at a, a much higher and less ambitious level, uh, simultaneously higher and less ambitious. And, and, and that is to kind of recognize that there are all, always rule systems out there with, with heavy commercial investments behind them, and they're not compatible, but they're going to have to work together on a semantic web. Um, and, and that particular proposal was that um, basically uh, one sets up a message framework for different rule systems and OWL to interoperate across the web. Um, and you know, my question associated with this to, to Mike and to Jim is, uh, do they see that as uh, a bad short-term approach or a good short-term bridge or something that could get things working and, and later on lead to uh, stricter standards? I'm, I'm not sure that's an exclusive or, in my opinion, this is Jim again, um, mm -hmm. in the sense, Adrian, that you know, there will always be proprietary applications for some things where people need either high-end performance or things like that. There's things you do on the web where you don't use your browser. You use other, or, or over the internet where you use some other tool for, for file exchange because it's more appropriate to some particular task on the web. But there's also a lot you do on the web. I think there's a tendency in some of these questions to be expecting too much of what will be common. Um, you know, if you look at HTML, for example, the first version of HTML is missing an awful lot of what we use today. A good standard evolves and changes and grows as it needs. It doesn't just get done and then stay static. I, I truly hope that OWL will be used enough that people will develop enough experience with it to help answer some of these questions. Same thing with the rules thing. We're still working on exactly what is the case for rules on the web and how to do that. Okay, so, then, yeah, well, for putting, for exchanging rules, the use case is obvious. There are many use cases. But does that rule exchange require an RDF-type framework? OWL, there was a strong argument for being able to link terminology in different ontologies. That was a design goal from day one. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with rules, how important is it? So, we're still working through a lot of these issues. I expect things to change over time. So, I, I mean, I could take that kind of as, as a yes. It would be a good idea um, to get rule systems interoperating at a message exchange level without any standardization because, you know, there are all these big commercial rule systems out there and there's a, it would be great if they would interoperate. And if they interoperate loose coupled with messages, uh, that can begin to get things people thinking in very concrete terms about how to sort of move that uh, vestigial uh, 
standardization down into the rule systems and gradually evolve towards something that, that is more closely coupled than, than just messaging. Uh, I, so, you know, is, is that something you would vote for? There's parts of what you said I would agree with, parts of what you said I, I'm not sure I would agree with, and parts that I just haven't really thought hard about. Let me let me see if I can separate those. Yeah. Um, the notion. So so let me go back to Owl for a second. See, I have a very different view of Owl than some people, which may sound funny to some people. I don't view Owl as an ontology language per se, or as a very good KR language. Owl is a language for exchanging ontologies much more than a specific language. So if I'm doing my own application, I view OWL as the way I export and import knowledge from other people. I don't view it as the only thing I'm allowed to use in the whole world for knowledge. So by analogy, I would say the same thing with some of the rule stuff, that I expect different people to work with different rule systems and to have some kind of interchange. But now let's work on the message version versus the um, versus some kind of let me publish my rules version. That I have less personal experience with. I have some, you know, random thoughts about it. Um, so I'm not sure I could agree with you in one step that therefore a message-based rule interchange is the right way to go. In fact, we tried to do message-based ontology interchange for a long time, and look how much more success OWL has had in the short time it's been out than some of the things that preceded it that were more message interaction based. If, if I can just jump in, Jim. Can bring in a real world problem for a second? I'm sorry to cut you off, sir, but uh, I've been... I was who's speaking, please? This is Rex Brooks, and the reason why I'm asking right now is because there's a simultaneous meeting going on for the naming and design rules of federal XML uh, usage. And I know that, that the specifics of messaging is important, but they were the one thing that's coming up in terms of their rules, when I say rules question, is that uh, in an XML schema, if you want to have a large schema, then you, you pay a price to have uh, it parsed and processed. And, yep. and if you include it or import it, you're stuck with including the whole thing. You can't just pick and choose. And I'm wondering if uh, uh, Dr. Hendler would have an idea about how feasible it might be to um, provide a some way to use RDF and, and perhaps OWL to be able to pull those resources out of a schema and be able to use it, use it, be able to cite a namespace and use a particular term from that namespace without having to go through all of that um, that problem because you're trying to figure out how to whether you whether whether how you get enough flexibility so if you want to you can have a schema for every element and that way you only have to import the element that you need versus having a ton of elements and you have to import all of them to get right. the one you need. Um, well, you know, let me quickly say about that, that that was actually probably the single biggest differentiator between RDF and XML was the assignment of URIs and how that's done. XQuery, XPath are attempts to fix some of that. And I expect sooner or later we'll see some kind of XPath naming meets RDF naming. 
but I don't know when. I mean, I know people who are, are working or thinking hard about it, but they're really two very different approaches to the world at the moment. One is very document-oriented. So the problem is, so XSD inherits from XML the notion that you're looking at a document and you're checking that document, that you're, you know, your driver's license has a photo on it and a name on it, et cetera, but doesn't kind of assume that that name will somehow be related to the concept name. Now, when you start using XSDs with databases, a lot of that stuff becomes implicit because you're sort of using XSD as if it was a, a real schema language, a database schema language. And then when you're doing that, you really want to be able to name the individuals and not view your whole database as a single document. And, and that's where suddenly the XML world has started to come into what RDF was designed to do. RDF has given everything its own URI from day one for exactly this reason. So there are a number of things going on. Now, currently within the World Wide Web Consortium, if you read the charter for the XML schema data types, it says explicitly that they must come up with a unique URI naming schema. There have been many efforts on the part of the RDF community to push them a little on that, and some of that's happening. One of the reasons is because when you have a complex schema, right, so, so you know, people often ask me, how come OWL can't use complex schemas? And the answer is because OWL can't, you know, by definition can't use anything that doesn't have a URI. By, by charter, XSD, XML schema, had the charter to come up with the naming process for XSDs, and they've been dragging their feet. I'm told stuff is happening in that space. I haven't checked in recently. So what I'd say for now is you're probably looking at something that requires putting some kind of procedural device in between the XSD and the RDF. We do that in my group all the time. We write little Perl scripts things like that. I've been pushing my students to try to standardize some of that, you know, or in, in our lab work, come up with some little tool that makes it easier to do that. And we've had limited successes in that because, of course, it's not our primary concern. But it's definitely the case that that's an important need and that it's not that hard to do in individual cases. What's really the problem is you have different expressivities at the different places, so you can't build a perfect two-way mapper, and you have to decide where you're willing to take loss. Thank you. Uh, I would like to ask, to, to follow up on, uh, this is Nicholas Rucat, by the way, to follow up on a, um, on some comment that somebody said, you know, you'd like to pick and choose from various ontologies so that you could perhaps construct, say, a new ontology, and, and you also made a comment earlier that um, your view about OWL is that it's really a mechanism for exporting and importing knowledge um, and, 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 and OWL is really the, the representation language for, for the knowledge that is um, exported and imported. And if you kind of combine these two, then, then you really could view OWL really as the representation language for, um, in the end, some kind of a workflow of uh, operations and ontologies um, that you could describe, say, using OWL-S, for example, where the processes would uh, do calculus operations on ontologies and, um, and, and the inputs and outputs of these processes um, would be the ontologies that are being manipulated. And in that calculus, um, we've kind of seen some examples of uh, the operations that you might have in there. There's uh, from the semantic web best practices documents, kind of like the using the classes as values uh, document that 
Natasha Noy is editing, there's a lot of examples about using annotations as a way of uh, making statements in one ontology about things in another ontology while remaining, for example, DL, so that we can do some interesting reasoning with it. But then there's not really much of a of an inverse operation about, well, if I have now a bunch of annotations about you know ontologies all over the place, like the example of picking and choosing things, now I'd like to kind of project all of that now into a new ontology so that I can that is DL so that I can reason about the things that I've picked and choose within with respect to the properties that I've picked and choose and I'm interested about these things and leaving everything else so that I remain DL for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and now producing a new ontology to say, well, this is what you got. And could we wrap that into, you know, some kind of our process? And the operations, it seems to me, that would be interesting to do in this kind of process would be things like, of course, annotation, embedding, which is in, you know, kind of like the inverse of annotating and or what just mentioned, and even things like uh, reasoning, like classifying and, you know, inferring, uh, you know, other things or, or and whatnot. Is, is, um, is something like this um, um, getting, I mean, are those ideas... Um, um, just off the wall, or, or is there something that that is happening that might us might might perhaps help get there? Right. Well, so so no, they're certainly not off the wall. On the other hand, you know, again, let let's be careful what space we're in, because when we talk about owl or about ontologies in general, so you know, the better thing is talk about ontologies in general with owl as a particular instance of a language for getting some commonality, a standard. Right. right. That's what it is. I mean, I didn't mean to say before you can't use it for knowledge rep or modeling. It was designed for that. But it was designed to be something where it formalized those things that within the community we had the most consensus about. Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's very different from most of the hard stuff. So there's a very active research um, agenda that OWL creates. Right. right. What What I think is, to me, is most exciting about it is that it makes it well two things one so so putting on my researcher hat now and you know why why at DARPA I was pushing some of this stuff one was to get it out the door because people need to start using it the other was because I felt that a lot of the research in this community had gotten focused on the ontology as an end rather than a means and exactly the kind of thing you're talking about where you're talking about constructing an ontology out of pieces of other ontologies when you're talking about putting things together and checking somehow whether things you've taken from a bunch of different places are consistent. All of that struck me, strikes me as exactly the right kind of research we need to do to keep OWL growing, to keep the semantic web growing, to get into new things. It's not like OWL is done, now we move away from ontology. Right? OWL is a, OWL version 1 is done, and someday I hope there'll be OWL version 10. And in OWL version 10, I would hope there's a lot more support for things that people who have been working on these things have done. Just as a simple example, the import mechanism in OWL is useful, but it's certainly not, it's, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. You must have ways of taking pieces of things and putting them together. You must have ways of referring to things outside your ontology in DL that don't somehow make it automatically become uh, an annotation property. But we just don't know. How, we don't have good consensus on how to do that. Now people are starting to do research in that area. I have a doctoral uh, student. He's actually a Spanish student working in my lab, who's just done a doctorate on exactly these kind of things. 
So I think it pushes new research. Now again, that research has to take some time, has to transition into tools. Those tools have to show their use in real use cases, and that has to get out there. So I, I, I would agree completely with you on, on on this. But then to me, it sounds like well, you know, it would make sense to have something you know you know mightily powerful that you could actually save these things into, like for example, you know, common logic so that you could actually say, well, at least we have a way of describing what these things are or making different proposals for describing what does it mean to pick, you know, different bits and pieces and build a Frankenstein ontology and make sure that with a reasoner, well, it's not Frankenstein, it's, you know, human. And, 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 and well, right now it's kind of like open up in the air about, well, how can we do this? And, and, and there's really not much of a ground we can can build on top of to to, to save these things. I, I I guess I agree with everything up until that very end there. Or I mean, now you have well. So let me let me just give you an example. When I was at DARPA, someone came into my um, uh, office and said, you know, listen, now that you're putting all these ontologies out, you need an ontology merging stuff. Look at my great on great work I've been doing for all these years, an ontology merging. I looked at him and I said, okay, here's a website with 200 ontologies. They're written in a syntax you can understand completely and totally, and it's all within the coverage of your language. Please go show me how your stuff works on that. And they came back to me very upset and said, well, all those people did stuff wrong. <laughs> well, you know, my answer to that person was, okay, you know, but then how can you claim generality of your technique outside your own research group if everybody you've tried it on has been trained by you, worked with you, et cetera? So there's always trade-offs in this space, right? The most powerful thing probably requires some fairly complex knowledge that you can't expect someone else to have across the world. So common logic and things like that, I'm not against it. In fact, I've, I've played in that, that community. And, and I'm very in favor of it going on. But I see it primarily as stuff to help make the research keep moving on the important topics so that we can develop things like extensions to OWL or a new rule language or something that, ha that we understand better what they do, what the use case was. OWL worked because we had 30 years of experience fighting with each other about details of ontologies. Right, but now, now that we're kind of like exploring ideas that we haven't had much of experience in, then yes. I believe that it's, it, it, it gets more important then to be able to find a way where we can keep on exploring these ideas in ways that are practical because they're tool-supported, and it's not because it's a tool that is in a cost enormous like because there's only one, one vendor on the planet who has that kind of technology, but it's something that um, we can reasonably find, you know, not perhaps you know 20 different vendors, but right. maybe a few of them who have some reasonable implementations of these things. Sure. And and so far, what I what I see is that well, you know, it, it's happening on more or less on the open source you know movement where you find um, you know fairly interesting you know tools out there that helps us kind of nibble at the edge of exactly um, how practical are, are some of ideas ideas, but it's. Uh, it, it, it's it's a bit of a kind of a you know hit and miss game and and, and difficult to really you know make good uh, guesses about exactly which combinations of these things um, might actually work. It's um, I, I agree with you completely, but that's why we have created conferences. That's why we've created journals. That's why 
um, you know, these things happen. I mean, you don't get to a standard in one step, right? Ten people can get together and publish a standard, right? There have been many ontology-ish standards before. What we did in OWL was we tried to use a very open process with a lot of people, two government investments on both sides of the ocean, lots of people playing. Uh, we got enough out of that that we were able to bring it to a major uh, consortium, you know, the W3C, which has a model of a very, very high uh, imp impedance. So most things that come into the W3C never get out. Right. We needed a lot of, of, of consensus coming in uh, to get there. Now, again, we started with some research languages. We put together this thing called DAML. We got a, a lot of people working on it. There was the, the competing oil. We got the people together. So, so again, a lot of it is, is, you know, the way you break chickens and eggs is by making proto-chickens that lay proto-eggs. And, and sort of evolve towards what you need. There is, you know, you have to go through open and closer. So, you know, somebody who's a tool vendor can build a special purpose tool in this area, and certainly some of those are out there. Um, you know, things need to prove their worth either in the market or in the research community, or et cetera, and they tend to move between these things. I, I, I don't think I'm saying anything interesting in that. I mean, that's just very high level. But what I think is the tricky part here is we tend to forget the narrowness of our own community with respect to our capabilities, right? I mean, OWL, if I could make any change of OWL, I would probably drop about half of it, right? I would make it a much, much simpler language, even though it would feel to me like cutting off my left arm because I use so much of it. But the reason is because people have to be able to pick up this thing and start going. And then they get motivated to do more. Right? I often say, you know, imagine if you had tried to build the web out of XML. You couldn't copy and paste. Uh, the browser would have been way harder to do. Creating your own web page would have required creating document frameworks and DTDs for your organization and stuff. In instead, something much simpler came out and motivated people to work hard to get to the point where they could understand why you needed something better. So now SGML, in the form of XML, which is much closer to the original SGML than HTML is, you know, is moving very well. And I think, I think in the logic world and the semantic world, we're seeing similar type stuff. We have, to, we have to walk before we can run. We have to get other people crawling before they can walk. And that's starting to happen. People in, you know, companies like um, Oracle are now talking about supporting RDF. They're not yet talking about supporting OWL, but if they support RDF, they make it a lot easier for those people who are doing OWL things to, to base their stuff on a firm foundation. They will eventually be doing OWL. I hope at that point I will be doing stuff in languages, you know, in OWL, ver, you know, what will be OWL version 6 someday, or in rule languages or rules in OWL, things like that. So, you know, very much I'm agreeing with what you're saying, but I don't think you can just ask for something to be mandated in one step, which I know you're not saying. Well, right? Jim, but we do have a very active research community. I think it's Jim, important to people. Thank you, uh, Nicholas, for, for the great question. Let's maybe uh, take inventory on who who has questions so that we can sort of call call on the the uh, people one at a time. Um, Peter, if I may just jump in, Adrian Walker. Um, uh, Jim was 
sort of two-thirds of the way through answering a question and uh, the sort of sidetrack question. Okay. I, I wonder if Jim wants to complete that. <laughs> Jim would love to complete that. Remind me what what I hadn't answered yet. Okay, so, so um, I, I, I had sort of uh, put on the table the idea of um, all the existing rule systems that are out there with heavy commercial investment oh, right, 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 yeah. beginning to communicate uh, via messages. And uh, you, you had said I have a th that you, Jim, have a three-part answer, and you got to parts one right. and two, but, but we never right. got to part three. Right. So the part that I agreed with was I like the idea of trying to bring those rule systems together. The part I wasn't sure about is um, the message passing. And I guess that's also the part I was disagreeing with a little bit because you're being kind of categorical about message passing being the right way to do it. So I, it's really not that I disagree with that. It's more that I'm saying that needs to be explored. But I don't... I don't only, only in the sense, Jim, of it's something simple to start with, just in the spirit of what you were saying. No, that, that, that's fine. But again, you know, my, own, my one caution on that is look at something like uh, KQML, a very powerful message framework, or um, I'm, I'm blanking on what the name of... Uh, there was a DARPA standard for knowledge exchange, uh -huh. uh, K... Anyway, Kif? not KIF, the, um, the, the, that's going to drive me crazy now, now that I can't remember it because I, I worked on it for years. Um, KQML? Uh, I'm sorry? KQML? No, not KQML. It was the, um, it was, it was the middleware approach to having, you know, ontologies able to say things to each other. Um, so I could send a message to another ontology saying, please assert that this and this is true, and, you're, and here's the language I talk, and things like that. And it wasn't um, KADS either, was it? No, no. Well, but, but again, you know, there were several things in that space, XOL and some others, that were all kind of pushing around that same area, and they were all very much focused on a message exchange approach. But the problem with the message exchange approach is we tended to have this problem that it was sort of like having one telephone, or, you know, ten people with fax machines, hard for some, but, you know, you had to get a certain critical mass going in the message world before you can really get people sometimes to put the critical effort into conver converting their stuff. That's getting a lot easier now. Mm. So, you know, with some of the web service standards and things like that, I think messagey approaches are a lot more affordable than they were, but I think exactly how to do it and what they look like and things like that, people need to get some proposals out there. Uh, people need to start using them. The possible plus of this proposal is that the messages would be human-readable as well as uh, obviously executable. Um, uh, again, Adrian, you know, I don't disagree. I just say yeah. asserting something is different than getting some out there, getting people using it, getting, you know, um, somebody mentioned open source tools before. I think it was Nick. One of the reasons why the open source tools are having more success at the moment is, is, sim is exactly the case that people aren't quite sure what they want to do with this stuff. It's fairly new. So they'd rather grab a few open source tools and fool around for a while, and then when they think they're, they're understanding what's going on, then they're ready to go shopping or to look for commercial things. And we're seeing that happening at both the RDF and the RDF scheme and a little bit of the OWL level. So I think that very much with this rule stuff, we've had many, you know, I think, I think Standardizing a format for a rule exchange is something where the community is, is fairly similar to where the OWL community was. 
it's missing some of that focused investment, but that may or may not matter. But I think with respect to things like how do you really use each other's rules? How do you take something which has procedural attachment against someone else's procedures? So again, I can't read someone else's uh, Ops 5 and just plug it into my system because it tended to be hardwired into the rest of the application. Well, also the it was one of its good. It was, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Also, the inference engines are different, so. etc. But but if somebody starts producing some some open source toolkits in this space, I promise you, a lot of people will use them. I mean, the few rule things that have been released open source that I know of have user communities who are fooling around with them and playing and doing some of this exchange. And in fact, a lot of the people who would be involved in any kind of standards um, effort in this space have probably primarily learned how to use this stuff from fooling around with those things. They're not trained mm -hmm. in this. Mm -hmm. And that, that's but, part but of what makes sense. There's, there's anyway. kind of a difference, there's kind of a difference in the situation, which is the, the, the huge previous investment by, by big commercial companies and rule systems. You know, it, it doesn't look as though that's going to be replaced by something that somebody developed open source. You know, no, 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 I agree, but we're, but we're talking about the interchange languages. We're not talking about the necessarily Good. the rules languages themselves. Good. Right. Good. Um, so to get that to happen, one is we need better use cases for interchange. Two is we need to explore the properties of those and develop things that work in that space. And three is we got to get some, you know, cheap and dirty, easy-to-use tools for tool makers out there. But, but these would be basically message interchange uh, support tools rather well, than... Well, that certainly is one way to go. And, you know, if you get those things out, people will start using them. And if someone else comes out with a different non-message oriented one, uh -huh. you'll have something yeah, to compare yeah. to. So, so. It, it's, as I said, in, in the other areas, start simple and, and develop towards yep. tighter standards. Yeah. You know, a, a, a very, very smart person, Berners Lee, once told me his secret of success. He said, build small but viral. Yeah. Right. And his definition of viral was roughly speaking, these are my own words now, your friend sees you using it and says, hey, i got to get one of those. Mm -hmm. And your competitor sees you using one of these and says, oh, my God, I'd better get one of those. Yeah, and in six degrees of separation, you've got the world, yes. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> and, and, you know, he, met, he, he done it. <laughs> <laughs> right. But the simple is the thing we tend to forget. Right. right. We want to get it right, and there's only a certain amount of getting things right you can do. Let's let some other people get questions in, because... Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, Peter, here. I was trying to ask, I mean, uh, maybe if we get people lined up, then we, we can sort of go, go, go through the questions. So, uh, anyone? Here, this is uh, Michael Maximilian. I have a question. Okay, Michael, let, let's take, take names first. Mike, Michael Maximilian from IBM. Brand, Brand, Mark Wine. Brand, Mark. Uh, okay. Anyone else in line? Uh, I do have a question too. This Peter. I, uh, Peter, it sounds like you're very, very far away from your phone. Am I? Uh, is this better? Yes. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, Michael, your turn. Okay. So, Professor Endler, um, my question is that I'm wondering if organic ontology construction may not be the right approach for the web. And just to make that case, and I'm wondering what are your thoughts on this, and just to give you an example, I was at a talk yesterday at Beitai in Silicon Valley, and we had presentation from um, Yahoo, um, Technocrati, and a lot of the people 
uh, one person there showed Flickr. Thank you. I'm sure you know about Flickr. Flickr and Delicious. And what they've done is essentially use the community to create, if you may, an ontology of the pictures that they have. And using that, they were able to, for instance, differentiate between pictures that represent turkey the bird and turkey from you know, Thanksgiving and turkey the country. Okay. So I'm wondering if, instead of trying to build formal ontologies using tools like OWL, shouldn't we try for the web, especially because of the volume of people and the intelligence of the people using the web, organic approach is not the best uh, wood, or maybe it's a better wood than what we're trying to do right now. Um, yeah, I'm a little confused about which one you're referring to as the organic approach. The, oh, what, the, the folksonomy type approach or the... Exactly. Folks yeah, okay. So, so, so here's the thing, you know, here's my quick thought experiment on that stuff, okay? Um, number one is, if folksonomy really works, won't it just become keyword recognition? I.e., isn't the logical extension to folksonomy Google and not something better than Google? Because, in fact, you're not putting anything in that the machine can know about how these terms relate to each other. What you're doing is getting a lot of human agreement. Now, I happen to believe that the human readability of terminology is absolutely crucial. I fought bitterly to get as much of that as possible into OWL and OWL tools. I think, you know, I can read, the fact that I can read your ontology and my tool lets me as a human do a lot of things. So I'm a firm believer in that. In fact, and also, if you look at OWL, OWL is built in a way that that exactly ontologies can point at other languages and other things. So, so the, think about something like this, right? I've had this I've had this talk with the Technorati guys. I find them foolish personally. I mean, they're doing cool stuff. I've had the talk with the Flickr guys. I think they understand it a little better. And, and companies like Asemantics are trying to move into the space, which is okay. So you get. You get a bunch of people to agree to a particular language. That's fine. You've just become XML schemas, right? I mean, you're not real, except you have an easier way to write them if you argue that CSS is easier than XML, but that's another whole argument. But let's say you have easy tools for folksonomies, okay? So now you have ways people can mark up information about which people are involved in things. Well, now, what's the first thing you want to do with that? Well, you'd like to have a rich vocabulary of people. You'd like to be able to say what property of people might be a useful property for reverse indexing. So two guys with the same email address can be assumed to be the same person. Uh, two people with the same name probably shouldn't be assumed to be the same person. Uh, you know, where your your home your home page is a useful thing to know about a person. Well, now you're into FOF. FOF is exactly the middle between a folksonomy and a formal ontology. And it uses some OWL to do some of the things it needs formal for, the inverse functionals, the transitives, et cetera. And then, by the way, you have people now, my group does it, lots of people do it, who build their more formal ontologies, the people in their organization, with back pointers to FOF, which that, therefore, you could collect information in a folksonomy type way, import it to another one, and bring it into your formal ontology where you can actually reason about who's related to who or which are the same people, or who, who works for what organization, which you can't do in the folksonomy level. So I don't see these things as competing. I see them as cooperating. And I see what's really going on in my mind is this capital semantic web versus small semantic web argument is 
One, a lot of people who don't understand semantics but understand that Tim Berners-Lee is a smart guy want to claim his term. And two is people like Shirky who don't want, who've, who've argued all everything Tim has ever done. They've argued it wasn't going to work right, including the web. Uh, you know, I can't tell you how many people have tried to make the 404 error go away. Problem is you can't because you can't have the web without it. You can't have a scalable, distributed uh, text-type system. So, you know, again, I think we have to find the use cases for the different levels of semantics. I think we have to find tools. I pointed out, I, I just recently had this argument with Marty Tenenbaum, and I showed him some of the tools we were building in my lab. I said, why is it harder to use these tools than to use the taxonomy tools? And he said, actually, it's easier to use these tools. And he and I are meeting in a couple weeks with some of the Technorati guys and things like that to talk about how we put these things together. So, you know, the, the problem is that we in the ontology world, we're, primary, we're, we're a little too focused on creating the ontology and not what you do with it. When you start doing a tool where you show that you read an ontology from somewhere, mark up photos with it, and then it can be indexed correctly against those things so that you don't have to use a folksonomy to tell Turkey the country from Turkey the food. Right? If I'm linked to the food ontology, it's unambiguous. So... You know, a lot of it is how do we harness all this stuff together. That, that's my belief. And OWL was designed from day one, DAML, oil, um, less oil, more DAML. And uh, the, the shoe stuff that I was doing in the 90s was all based on the assumption that linking things together, getting that network effect was the crucial thing. Okay. I guess so, the, viral, the viral effect that, that you mentioned. That it's the viral effect, but it's also the network effect, right? Um, how do I get someone to care about the fact that my ontology exists? Well, you know, one way is they want one, and mine is 80% of what they need, and they just steal it because I'm publishing it open, and other people are copying, and some people are pointing, and things like that. And now what you have is a network effect. Uh, in a talk I gave recently, I showed a very simple ontology that basically says feline leukemia is leukemia defined in the National Cancer Institute's ontology, where the organism that gets the disease is cat is defined in psych. Right? Well, I've just pointed at, at 87,000 formally defined classes in my one little assertion there. How do we harness that? How do we use that? that that's another issue. But I believe I have a reasonably good definition of feline ontology. Uh, feline leukemia using those other two things. So I see some big skeletal ontologies being very useful. I see a lot of things that will be in a kind of medium form, this SCOS language, which has problems as from the way they did the KR when you come at it from the perspectives of those of us who like things formal but has the very nice feature that it maps very cleanly to a lot of people's ontologies. So I know Library of Congress is going to release some of their stuff in it. Uh, Library of Agriculture is going to release their stuff in it. Well, now you'll have those things on the web linkable to, and by the way, now your OWL ontology can use that stuff as annotation and gloss. So is that a bad thing? Well, and, I, and you can bet that the folksonomy guys will be pointing at those the way they already point to WordNet. So I think what we're going to see is that this stuff naturally grows together and that this OWL and RDF schema stuff is a little bit more the high end of that story and that a low end doesn't compete. Okay, it's, just, it's just amazing that in one year they were able to gain so much popularity and so much 
actually using it. Oops. Yeah, you know, I heard that, and I was actually very upset about that until I happened to have been at a conference lately where we actually looked at the numbers. And, in fact, more people are using RDF than are using their stuff by a large margin. If you live in the Bay Area, you don't notice that. So, uh, you know, one of the questions, one of the Technorati guys was asked, what about internationalization? And he said, well, you know, at the moment, there's almost nobody using this stuff outside the U.S. And he said, in fact, there's not really that many people using this stuff outside the, uh, you know, the Bay Area, except for the blogging stuff, and most of them aren't really doing anything other than, you know, what's automatically built into the blogging tool. Flickr's doing better. But even Flickr has the problem that, you know, you put in the Chinese characters for China, and I put in the word China, they don't go anywhere near each other. Those pictures don't find each other. And how do you solve that problem? Well, you need to start adding some KR. And what are those guys doing? In fact, the Flickr guys are talking to the RDF guys quite a lot these days. Okay, thanks, Michael. Uh, Brand? Yes, hi, Jim. And, hi, Brand. Uh, thanks for uh, dialoguing with us. Uh, just a, a slight update. I've been working with the Oracle people, and uh, they, uh, besides being able to do RDF now, which we'll show next week in our workshop, uh, they've announced planned support for OWL. In, uh, version 11 of the database, and I can put a link, post a link, uh, but uh, they've announced they'll allow all ontologies to be stored in a set of Oracle tables, and then they've announced uh, uh, querying for it. They prototyped it already, and I've asked them to show it to me, and then they plan to release it in version 11 of the database, and up to version 10 now. But I'm very, what I wanted to get your comment on, I'm very impressed with the way they can provide storage now for RDF, and the fact that Oracle is so ubiquitous yep. that, in the federal context, all everybody has to do is upgrade to the next version, 10G release two, and every agency that's using Oracle uh, now has access to RDF capabilities. So, it seems to me if we can just get enough people uh, uh, creating RDF or or converting to RDF. We'll, we'll take a big jump up in this. I wondered what you thought about that strategy. I'm, I'm a firm believer in it. You know, I was, I was happy that companies like Takana and the Kawari stuff was starting to show that it was getting acceptance within the contractor community. Again, Oracle having this stuff still means that the defense contractors um, who build the larger systems have to learn how to integrate with it and use it. But uh, if you actually go back to my very first slides I ever gave at DARPA about um, this stuff, most of which are not public, uh, unfortunately, um, a lot of what I said, you know, in selling the program was, you know who builds the government and DOD systems is not the contractor. The contractor does the integration, right? If you don't get this stuff into Microsoft or IBM or Oracle or companies like that, Right? Then, you, then you haven't broken this thing. Then you'll always be fighting the not invented here. Right? Why isn't XML not invented here? Well, because lots of people support it. Right? I think the RDF stuff, it was pretty clear to me that the government need for integration uh, of these things was not unlike an outside need, but was much more pronounced. And I, and, you know, I really felt the government investment, this is one of these cases where I don't think this stuff wouldn't have happened without... Uh, DARPA, NSF, the European Union's investment, etc. 
I think what would have happened is it would have taken a lot longer because it was, you know, you, companies will use whatever works when it's in a useful form and it's nearby and they can see a business case. But getting, you know, it's, it's crossing that chasm. I, I really see the Oracle stuff and, you know, I, I, I certainly hope they'll stick to it. Adobe has a commitment to RDF um, if they stick to it, you know, things like that. I mean, we really see the infrastructure happening because of those those um, those companies doing these things. And so I think that's great. Um, Oracle, you know, again, there'll always be two problems with Oracle being sort of the only game in town. One is it's expensive if you're a university or a, a small company. And two is it, um, you know, it, no, no big company can be ahead of the game as an innovator. So, for example, the fact that Oracle can store your OWL it still means you're going to need to look for somebody who can have build an OWL tool for you or whose tools export OWL or things like that. But, boy, it's a major. You know, I can't tell you how the sigh of relief that could be heard among the, uh, the, 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 the I, you know, I'm not sure what word to use, the gurus of the uh, semantic web community when Oracle announced. I think I should initially say hello because uh, I'm Susie Stevens. Is this Susie? <laughs> yes, we love you. <laughs> You're wonderful. No, seriously. I mean, I think the I think the convergence of a lot of things is going on here. I think the other thing that's happening is the services community. Um, you know, with DARPA, we started the OWLS stuff a long time ago. Um, I I got that going. I think six or seven years ago now. And one of my predictions was, you know, you can look out into the future and see where companies will need this as more of the services start to get out there and used. And while we can't exactly predict how the services will be used, you can see some of this coming. So I think that's also nice, as we see need to put services together with data. You see some kind of uh, format starting to form in the middle that work nicely. And you see the corporate uh, things starting to happen. So I'm actually pretty, pretty happy. <laughs> It's kind of fun being at Oracle at the moment because there's so much excitement about um, RDF and getting contacted by so many different people. And uh, originally, um, I just have a, had a focus on life sciences, but uh, I started working with uh, Brand and P Peter and people in the government and getting contacted by banks now as well. So it, it's fascinating to watch it evolve. It's, you know, for, for me, it's scary. But <laughs> it, it would be interesting to know if Dave Nichol, um, how much of Dave Nichol had, uh, had something to do with with the uh, Oracle supporting OWL or or, or, uh, or or whether it just turned out to be a synergetic interest of his. Um, I, I, I have to confess I don't even know who Dave Nichol is. So. Yes, on his call. You mean Dwayne Nichol? Dwayne. Dwayne Nichol, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, for for Adobe you're talking about, correct? Oh, I'm sorry, Adobe Oracle. Oh, oh they, well, Adobe is very committed. I, I heard from uh, Jim the the comment. You know, if Adobe continues with it, I can tell you we are very committed to uh, semantic uh, work, ontology work, and the continuation of RDF. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to in any way imply that I thought Adobe wasn't. I, I was using no, it. No, 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 it's my fault. Know. I confused. No, 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 Adobe but Oracle. yeah, but I'm, but I'm, but I meant both, but both, all of the above. I mean, you know, um, I'm working with Adobe and um, you know, talking to them a lot about various aspects of this stuff. And you know, I, I know they're committed. That wasn't. I mean, you are, know, are they? Are you talking like, for example, like said, doing things like you know, Sparkle embedded in say um, Adobe um, Acrobat? You know, like when you want 
to search something on a in Acrobat right now. It's just you know the Let words. Me, can I can I uh, deflect that question? It, because in the lack, of, I, I noticed we had a couple more queued okay. up, and sure. uh, I can't you know you can't ask me that question. <laughs> I'm sure the Adobe guys would be happy to jump in. Can I just jump in with a very quick question for the Oracle knowledgeable folks? Is RDF support in in version nine or only in version ten? Um, the RDF data model is available in 10G Release 2, which came out on Linux about three weeks ago, and it's going to be available on all other Oracle-supported platforms in about another three weeks. Thanks, thanks for the information, Susie. Thank you. So, so, so maybe actually to the Oracle guys, maybe we could still ask, you know, are they going to support things like uh, ontology styles of uh, querying lang uh, languages like Sparkle or, or others as part of providing our support? Um, so, um, to the best of my knowledge, all of our plans related to the next release of the database are still confidential, so we can't really talk okay. about those at this point. Great. Um, but our, and also, our, our development plans haven't completely been finalized for 11G yet, so um, even if I was to say something was going to happen, there's not a 100% guarantee that that would actually be carried through at the moment. Mm. Um, so um, on, on one hand, unfortunately, I can't tell you very much. On the other hand, if you want to see certain functionality in the next release of the Oracle database, send me an email within the next week or two, and you might then <laughs> Susie, what's, what's your email address? <laughs> it's Susie, S-U-S-I-E dot Stevens with a PH at oracle.com. Thank you. Thank you, Susie. So let's bring the conversation back to semantic web.
gives you an ASP. They give you a web way of working with them. Problem is there's nothing you can do up front to make them all look the same or, or to help make them meet your way of doing business. So you end up sort of outsourcing your office staff. Um, and so, so some of my thinking in this space is that probably the place where the incentive needs to lie is in is in getting the stuff so that the front ends for this become more natural and more adaptable. Having said that, I don't really have good ideas how I've actually, you know, without getting into a lot of detail of little things I've seen and stuff like that, which I'd be happy to do with you sometime uh, since we live in the same town. But um, I think the... But I think the answer is is that very much we have to figure out how to deal with this network effect stuff. It's very clear that the ability to have the sharing is important, but it's also counterculture to how it's done now, primarily because of the privacy. So, you know, I don't know how you balance the two. I'm not sure I'm actually answering your question, am I? Mark? Mark? Yeah, yes, sir. I'm sorry. I wasn't sure if that was really answering your question. Yes, uh, that was a, a good broad-based answer. Yeah. Um, I would say, you know, I actually think some of the service stuff has a lot of potential also. Because, again, it, 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 in the conversation we had before about rules and things, we were talking about messages versus formats, et cetera. But part of it is messages have a nice point-to-point -point feel to them. I can send you something. We can exchange. You can call my information system. There's a single point of entry at which policy can be explored. And so one of the things we've been talking about, in not so much in a healthcare but in a related area, is very much this notion of use the ontology to manage the space on top of an infrastructure that's really much more of an information exchange infrastructure point to point. I can't say I have deep things to say about it, but my guess is that it's going to have to be some kind of hybrid like that at the moment. Yeah, I'll just comment and say there, there's certainly, as we know, going to be a broad array of business, types of businesses and uh, end users uh, interfacing with health information systems uh, as we go forward under the strategic framework for implementing a nationwide health information network. Um, and they're going to be relying vitally, critically, vitally, on, on definitions, yeah. common understandings, on the incorporation of standards for interoperability, which right. I strongly believe um, these tools can uh, can help with. And uh, you know, it's to the point. It's, it's to the point where lives are depend upon and right. depending upon uh, the use of these functions and tools. Right. Mark, let me give you a much more specific answer in a sense that okay. probably relate, is less in your, your business area and is more general. Um, you know, one of the things that I learned looking at the National Cancer Institute's playing with this stuff, so they already had folks doing thesaurus work and things, yeah. much like the NLM does more generally. There was a presentation of their work at the uh, Consolidated Health Informatics meeting last week, in fact. Yeah. Okay, but one of the things that's interesting about it is now there are, there are, since they've moved to OWL and more people have been able to see and share and use that stuff, they're getting much more feedback than they ever got before. 
they've got people who are actually trying to look at their stuff, both from a formal level and from a use level. In part because they were the only game in town, partly from mandate, because people have to use it, but mainly because they were the only game in town. Right? You either could build it from scratch or you could use theirs. Right? As more and more vocabularies get out there, as more and more people can find and use things, um, you know, this becomes, then the issue becomes where do you look for stuff, things like that. So, so I think part of what, com what people who want to get a jump on this stuff want to mot pe motivate people to use this stuff, it's very much like the web. The people who put up the first, I'm going to use the word definitive website, but what I really mean by that is credible website or something like that. So the first people to have stuff in the space that said, you're looking for healthcare information, look, we're a hospital. Right? They started to get a lot of people looking at their pages, which of course motivated other people to start playing with putting up more pages and things like that, forced other hospitals to put up their specialties. Um, I have a feeling that some of that same stuff has to happen in this information space, either by becoming the equivalent of a link site to say, look, there are a lot of medical ontologies out there, some of which are, are good, some of which are bad. Let's create a, a, a mechanism by which we curate a collection rather than curate the ontology. So let's just become the place people start coming when they're looking for healthcare information, ontologies. Excellent example. Excellent example. The cancer bioinformatics grid uh, in the space that you referred to is, is one excellent example uh, practically mm -hmm. there. That's right. And so, but, I, but again, I think that getting stuff out there is crucial. Or if you don't have the resource to develop the stuff, then for a much lower cost, something like Veterans Affairs or, or places like that can, can start creating registries that are trustworthy. Trustworthy is not quite the right word, but again, like the early website, right? You wouldn't link to something unless you knew the people and you knew it if you were a hospital, whereas everyone else just was out there creating pages saying, look at a million things you can see about health. And people pretty rapidly started realizing it was better to go to the ones which were curated by people who knew what they were doing, and those sites started to grow. I have a feeling that the best way to motivate people to, to use this stuff is to make it easy, and that means having some place they can go where there's, you know, a registry or a help desk or things like that. In fact, the DOD did that with its XML registry. Originally, they were going to have something where um, you know, there were only going to be a couple of legitimate schemas, and it was all going to be mandated, and da da da. And the users rose up and said no. Instead, they ended up going with a registry-based approach. Now, if you're in the DoD and are looking to do XML, you always start by going to the registry because you get in trouble if you build your own when there's one already there. Yeah. So it's motivating interoperability by a social rather than a technical means. And I think the healthcare stuff really needs some of that same kind of stuff. I wish the Library of Medicine would, would step up to that plate. I've talked to people there about it. And, you know, again, one of the problems they have is so much of their stuff is in proprietary, you know, they can't give it away. They have to have licenses and things, and they're very strict about it, very careful. And I'm not quite sure why I understand that putting something on the web behind a uh, password is different than, you know, where you have to sign up to get it is some, somehow that much different than mailing somebody CDs with the stuff on it and letting them put it up. But, um, you know, I do understand legally there are differences.
But I mean, there are these issues here. But again, I think that the more that gets out there, and you now know from the previous question that you know when companies like Oracle will help you support this stuff, it it's, means you don't have to build the infrastructure from scratch. You can build on top of stuff that's there. It really, for a fairly low cost, you can become a community resource. And I think most people will be motivated to get into this stuff simply by the value going up and the cost going down. Well, you, you just gave me one idea of uh, how perhaps a, uh, a little database, uh, health IT sharing database, uh, that includes uh, listings of places uh, and projects where uh, healthcare entities can go and find these yep. particular tools. That and making that uh, and spreading that around in itself, that would be a, a good motivator for adopters of health IT and EHR systems yep. to, to get on board. And, and what and what's more is, I bet everybody who's building any will be eventually will be knocking on your door saying, "Will you please, you know, let me in." So instead of you having to go out and say, what vendors have something in this space, they'll try to get into yours. Hi, Mark. Thank you. We're doing that. You Great. are? Yes. Now, who is this? This is Rex again. Oh, yes. Okay, Rex. Peter Yim here. Mark, uh, th thank you for the question. Uh, Peter, I'm, uh, Peter Yim here. I'm, I'm actually next. I have a couple of questions for Professor Handler. One okay. is, I mean, I, I love your, your point about uh, open source tools being crucial, I mean, in, in, in getting all this going. Uh, my question would be, do you see some systematic support for uh, development of these tools and the, uh, and, and, and the communities? And, and I guess that brings me to my second question, which is the sort of broader support and resources that is pumping into getting the, the semantic web or related semantic technologies uh, off, off the, uh, in, into sort of the real growth curve, uh, which right. I think is an important, uh, the timing is crucial at this point, yeah. but if we look around, I mean, the demo project funding just sort of uh, yeah. stopped and a few meetings ago, I mean, at Ontolog, I mean, uh, some participant from Europe is lamenting the fact that the U.S. seems to be sort of withdrawing the funding while U Europeans are putting more, more and more emphasis right. into developing this. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, do you have comments on that? Lots. Um, you know, let's take it a step at a time. Let me do the first one first. Um, open source. Yeah, I think that... I, I wish there was somebody with a resource to do a, a, more of that. There's a lot of discussion about that right now. There's a lot of people pushing to get some of this stuff up. Mostly, it's happening now in the in the normal source forges, and you know, people like like my group has all these tools right now that we've kind of matured them as far as a university can mature something, which means they're still probably a million dollars away from where you could put them in front of a user community with some kind of support. Right, and the question is, you know, how do we get things across that? Uh, in the in the U.S., the model of how you do that is companies are supposed to come find these things, license these things. You know, you try to get them into the industrial sector. In the European in, in the European model, companies and, and universities team up more in the middle. So you have actually less basic research funding um, 
modulo you know how you define things but certainly in IT you have have in Europe less basic research funding but more of what we might call transition funding so I think what you're seeing is that the semantic web rapidly went from research to um, to practice, which is why you're seeing a lot of funding of it in Europe and less funding in America. I, I, in America, once Oracle says we'll support it, Congress goes to DARPA and says, you know, Oracle's doing that. What are you doing here? Right? Um, and, you know, sort of making the case for why they're, you know, but early questions in this form, you know, as I kept saying, we have to keep the research alive. It's got to stay ahead of this. So that's, that's a trick. And, you know, some of it is National Science Foundation. Some of it is that, again, you know, look how many things now are starting to form in the ontology space. There's the ontology centers and things like that. And what's nice about that is, again, with the standard, they're forced to at least have some version of their stuff coming out that way. So we are seeing more sharing through these informal ways things tend to get shared in the US. Um, you know, there's there's a lot out on the web. I mean, right now, if you Google for a term and do file type colon owl or file type colon RDF, you actually tend to be starting to find stuff more and more often. Um, I'm actually surprised sometimes by, you know, I say, here, let's look at workshop, and now I'm using Google. I'm not using any kind of uh, toy that some research community is playing with. Um, but that said, you know, how do we get next generation stuff in here? How do we keep that going? I'm very frustrated. I mean, you know, I helped create the funding in this field. Now that I'm out an academic again, I'm in the one country that doesn't seem to be funding it very much. Uh, you know, I get uh, the intelligence community is funding it. The DOD is funding it. I mean, everybody's doing small amounts of it, but mostly in, in what you might call the 6263 space. So the basic research to keep this stuff going has, is sometimes a little frustrating at the moment. All that said, um, that's in some ways a good thing. You know, as the stuff gets out, as people start using it, it motivates the next generation of it. People start coming back and saying, uh, you know, how do we get this stuff to the next level? How do we, you know, hey, now that we've got an ontology in our organization and we need tools to maintain it and support it, we've got that starting to happen. Now we'd like to use it for data cleansing. You know, we've got these databases and we just realized we can you know, use our, our OWL ontology for a purchase order to figure out which are good purchase orders. But somehow that doesn't work unless somebody builds a tool that turns the OWL into a transaction rule or, or something like that. So, so again, I think we'll see that cycle happening. That happened with the web. But in fact, look how many academics are doing research on advanced web tools at the moment. The answer close to zero if you take out the semantic web. Right. We do. We we may well see that in America, our funding model just says let Microsoft take this over or let other companies take it over, and you know who needs the research. But that said, um, you know, again, I think there's enough of us who know how to do things. I think there's enough hard problems in this for the future that, you know, when you send in your proposal for the fourth time. On, on, on ontology mapping type stuff and how it can play. And now you can say, look at the four different repositories being run by these different large government organizations and how hard it is to map things between them. You start to have more credibility. And, and the use cases aren't, hey, we're some academics saying we know about AI, trust us. 
So I think there's a lot of factors at play here. I, I you know, I have my I have my pessimistic days usually on days where I'm sitting here looking at my funding, and I have my uh, you know optimistic days, which are usually days where I'm sitting there thinking about it in, in a larger picture and, and looking at things like the Oracle announcement and things like that. Um, you know, you are. I mean, but I sort of wish I was in Europe right now. <laughs> the Interfencil just got another nine million dollar contract anyway. <laughs> um, Okay, who, who else is in line for questions? I'm, I'd like to ask a question. This is Nicholas. Nicholas, okay. Uh, please. Oh, okay. Well, um, you, 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 I, I'm, I cannot help but uh, kind of um, kind of put back the, the problem perhaps you perhaps who perhaps have, have the most, if you will, um, you know, authoritative status on on on, on the matter than than, than perhaps to, than perhaps others um, since you since, since you've started since you've been there for, you know from the beginning, in the sense that to me when when you know if you know somebody might say we need you know proposals on ontology mapping another one on ontology services another one on ontology matching and another one on on I don't know exchange or or versioning and whatnot, and in the end it it kind of to me it seems like well. There's a you know, bigger picture missing about well we're we we it, um, it, it's kind of like saying well we're manipulating you know ontologies as if they were you know programs for example but we haven't even figured out exactly what is the science of, of programming or what what does it mean to have say a uh, a, a you know, not calculus or mathematics or a, you know or or a basis for saying well. What are the different kinds of, uh, of of ways in which we can manipulate our ontologies to explain what does mapping means, what does matching means, what does versioning mean, and, and so on? Or not necessarily that it might be the only way to, to say it, but if if we could pick out, like you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the 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 fewest number of concepts or the the simplest way of describing um, um, how you know, these operations might be expressed in some sense. Um, it seems to me that that might be um, the, the the place where, if we could get it right, then um, then might make it easier then for somebody to say, um, do I need a proposal to build a um, ontology matching system, or is there enough now? knowledge about exactly what that problem is that in fact we can jump right ahead and build actually a product to do it um, uh, kind of like Oracle uh, um, you know building now you know storage for our um, maybe maybe I didn't quite explain myself but it, no, Nick, I understood what you said I'm not quite sure how to turn it into a question I mean other than saying I agree with you <laughs> well um, um, maybe what I was trying to ask is what would you, you know, would you, you, you know, recently you, you were asking about like, well, what would be the kinds of things to think about for say our version two, and and it seems to me like the the issue is is well we 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 haven't really actually thought about exactly how you know if we wanted to collapse all of the different things that people do with ontologies into right. say. 10, 12 concepts, what would those be? Right. <coughs> so, so one of the things I think is incumbent on the research community 
And here I include both academic research, industrial research, the thought leaders at companies that uh, need the research, is that the research agenda for the semantic web and for semantic technologies in general is getting buried under the initial success of the technology. The, you know, again, the web analogy is as browsers hit the commercial world, a lot happened, but somehow that killed, you know, computer science departments almost never teach web courses anymore except as a service course in HTML. Where's the thing to push forward the architecture of the web for the future? Where are the things, both in the semantic space and outside, is, is a real issue. Um, I'm involved in a number of activities personally that work on that, but you know, our, our funding in all the different countries is very stereotypes. So people who are involved in the medical community really are the ones who have to help the medical community understand the importance of this stuff to them. The people who are in the, you know, somebody came to me from the physics community and says, you know, how do we get physics to do what life sciences did and really start to put some stuff on the table about our needs and to get some attention? And I said, you know, they didn't do it by magic. They did it by starting to get stuff happening and commanding, you know, the attention of, of their funders, saying, you know, we need this stuff. Help us make it happen. Uh, and, you know, funder doesn't, I don't mean just government. I mean, you know, if you're in a company, it, it's figuring out where it can happen. Um, I think one of the things that's tricky is most people think that the Berners-Lee layer cake is equal to the semantic web roadmap, right? It sort of says we do this, then we do this, then we do this, then we do this, then we're done. But of course, that's not true. I mean, at every one of those levels, there's what do we do, how do we get it out, what do the tools look like, what are the next steps, how do we do this ontology, all the things you said in the ontology space. I think getting some groups to write white papers in that space, I think getting some people to understand that picking the low-hanging fruit is critical first step, but not sufficient in the long term. And you know, I, I often start my talks on the semantic web, and maybe I'll use it today to end one. I often say, you know, I give about half my talks to business groups trying to convince them this isn't research, and half my talks to research groups trying to convince them that this isn't, uh, you know, just some business thing, right? This really is an exciting area because it has both stuff that's ready today, stuff that can be appropriate applied at the level we know how to apply it right now, you know, we can build the data stores at the level that most people's portals are. But at the same time, for the future, there's a lot of stuff we don't know how to do and we have to work out how to do. And we need people working in those areas from all the different um, groups that are involved in this stuff. You know, the Scientific American paper was sort of a vision of, you know, sort of a five or ten year starting place vision. But, you know, we're five years into it now. Uh, you know, there's still people working on next visions, but they tend to be in, in sub-areas and things like that. Um, I'm spending more of my time these days in, the, in, in that part of my life looking at policy and stuff like that, because, again, I think that's a crucial part of getting this stuff into the future. But, you know, people in the ontology community really now have a starting place to start saying, okay, not how do we take the agenda we've had for 30 years and keep pushing it, but how do we take that agenda, how do we look at what's happening in the real world, and how do we find 
the points of content so that we can focus the research effort on those. DARPA is desperate for people to help them understand. Uh, you know, the reason the DAML program went away wasn't because DARPA doesn't like this stuff anymore. It's because it was a five-year program. The program reached the end. It got two one-year extensions. And that's as long as anything gets funded at DARPA unless a new program manager comes in and says, here's why it's, here's why it's important. DARPA will fund this stuff in a minute as soon as somebody comes in there with a good case. And so, you know, it's really incumbent on a lot of us who want to see this technology flourish, who want to eventually see someday when the common logic is really something that, that's widely understood and used to, to keep this thing moving. But we got to make the case of uh, we can't just come in and say it's all broken because you're using a non-expressive language or, you know, let's redo the whole thing in F-logic, right? We really need to find a way to pull these things together and to say here's the vision Here's how we keep moving to that vision, and here's some of the next steps. Somebody pick it up. Isn't this part of the problem that you just kind of expressed, where you said that the community is fragmenting off into some very specialized things, but what you just said is that the funding is not able to fund the larger general stuff. It only is able to fund the very small specific things. Who is this again? I'm sorry, this is Dave Whitten. Dave, I don't think that's what I said. Um, I don't. It, it, it's more that you have to make the cases for the different things. And different people fund to different cases. Business funds to making a profit. Business needs to go after low-hanging fruit, if it's short-term, or after something where it perceives a larger market in the longer term. And, you know, we have obviously convinced a few businesses that this is the right stuff to be doing. But that's, you know, how you get corporate interest moving. At the research level, Okay, DARPA's job is to find the crucial long-term problems of the U.S. Department of Defense and solve them, period. Uh, NIH's problem is to look at the needs of healthcare and health sciences in America and figure out, you know, what research investment to make to solve them. If somebody comes to NIH who can talk credibly about the role of this stuff in medicine like Mark does, it gets them interested. Now, you can either talk about, you know, the million-dollar case that you have or the hundred-million-dollar case that needs one of those agencies to really go after this in a large way. Obviously, that latter one is a harder thing to do. It's what someone goes to DARPA as a program manager for. It's what at NIH you, you spend time there as an IPA doing. But all those things, you know, require people in the community to either do that, which was my case, which is the rarer case, or more typically help somebody at one of these places understand the importance of this stuff in their own use cases against their needs and really help make it happen. And uh, I think we're actually in pretty good shape. I mean, you know, having said all that, almost every funding agency in America is funding some of this stuff, just usually not in a program office that's called the Semantic Web Office. I actually think that's a good thing. I think, you know, I, I actually counseled NSF against setting up and a, a semantic web program, because I knew what would happen was they would put X dollars in that, and that would be the X for all semantic web programs. Now, if you look at all the things where semantic web is a part of it, I mean, some big bio thing that has a small semantic web part, but you total up all those dollars, they're not terrible. But it's not a focused investment in the next generation, and somebody has to help them understand what those next generations are and why they should be funding them. Okay, so I guess it's a good time to uh, have Professor yeah. Handler uh, 
Jim? Yeah. Um, so, you know, thank you all for the, the, for the very thought-provoking questions. Um, as I said, people who have more specific questions or who want to follow up on these, there are the two different things. I guess Peter will tell me how to get involved in the forum. And um, those of you who want to send me specific things, um, uh, please just, you know, mention that you participated in this. I get, a, I get a lot of email from people asking me questions about Semantic Web, and I sort of prioritize them as those who came to some, those who put the time and effort into listening deserve the first answers. Okay, thank you very much, Jim. I mean, uh, on, on the wiki session page, we've already got Jim's email address, but obviously it's great if you can post it to the forum so that I mean, the rest of the community can, can uh, gain this shared knowledge. And uh, uh, with, if Jim, with your permission, we can add you to the, the list. I mean, you sure. can set it for uh, no mail into your inbox or, or digest if you want to. No, that's fine. That's fine. Just, um, and, uh, Peter, if you'll send me the details after, I'll make sure that I'm where I can read that stuff. Okay. I mean, uh, yes. And uh, I had a conversation with Jim earlier this morning, and uh, we would lo be looking forward to having him with us again when we uh, go to a, a next panel discussion where we would look at the standardization from the more traditional standards like the ISO 11179, the, uh, all the way to the uh, data modeling to the semantic modeling standards. And we are planning on a session like that uh, in, in short order. So uh, on, on that note, uh, let me uh, thank Professor Handler on behalf of the community for spending uh, time with us. Uh, this is the Ontolog Forum, uh, Thursday, August 11th, year 2005, and uh, we have Professor Jim Handler at the Ontolog Monthly Invited Speaker Session. Thank you, Jim, and thank, thank you, everyone, you, for thank joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.